Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shapes of Stories with me, Lawrence Prestige. And yeah, I've got a really cool guest for you guys today, as I'm, my guest is um, Sonia Soda. And Sonia Soda is someone who um, is, well, she's a chief writer for The Observer as well as The Guardian. And um, yeah, she's had a, a really interesting career in terms of her journalism, but also in politics as well, as she was an advisor to um, Ed Miliband um, a few, well, I'm trying to think how long ago it was now, so I'll lose my track of time. But um, yes, Sonia was... Um, involved in Ed uh, Miliband's campaign and uh, so it's really interesting to talk to her about that her career in journalism uh, we covered quite a lot of things obviously talking about politics in this country and politics in the US as well and just about her career in writing in general and so yeah really cool chat to um, I had with Sonia uh, be sure to check her stuff out um, be also be also sure to check us out on social media as well you can follow us on the shapes of stories just at shapes of stories on twitter you could follow me on twitter as well under l prestige seven you could follow me on instagram at prestige books and we also have facebook pages under the shapes of stories and me lawrence prestige but without further ado here's my chat with the wonderful sonia soda Sonia, how have you been? Yeah, I've been good, thanks. Uh, yeah, it feels like we've been in this latest lockdown. It feels it's starting to feel a bit interminable, actually. It's only mm-hmm. been, what, four weeks now, but it feels like four months. But apart from that, I'm very good. Yeah, I was going to say, you've been writing anything, in, like covering anything in particular this last year, but I guess it's all kind of been pretty much COVID. <laughs> yeah, I've, I have actually ended up writing quite a lot about COVID and the pandemic as every journalist has done yeah. because it touches on everything, doesn't it? I suppose the most interesting bits for me is I hadn't really written that much about science before this year, uh, but I've done a few columns uh, in the last sort of 12 months or so about science and the interface between science and politics and you know, what it means for science to be sort of producing all this stuff very quickly Mm -hmm. in a pandemic when it's very high demand, but also what that means for the relationship between politicians and scientists and the way that we all view scientific expertise. So that's been really interesting getting into that sort of subject, actually. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, do you, are you kind of at the stage now where we're kind of, you feel like we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines and everything? Or do you think you have to still sure. be kind of wary? Because you sort of hear about these new um, sort of variants and stuff coming in, but like you'd be hoping that the, you know, the vaccines will cover them as well and, you know... I think it it very much is a light at the end of the tunnel, but I sort of thought when we got the good news about vaccines last November, December, that was a light at the end of the tunnel. And for me, psychologically... It was almost like I sort of said goodbye to lockdown and the toughest stage of the pandemic 
last August, September, because it sort of felt like everything was getting better. You knew that there will be scientists saying, we've got to be prepared for the winter, there's a second wave coming. So rationally, you know that. But psychologically, I think it was just very hard to get your head around the idea that we might be in a similar sort of lockdown as we were March to May. I, I, I didn't really kind of emotionally believe that. So we had all that good news before Christmas. And then it feels like it, even though we had all those warning signs in December, it feels like emotionally, it just kind of, we got hit with it in early January. So it's been, I guess it's been a bit up and down because we got the good vaccine news. Then all of a sudden it feels like we're in a worse place in March and we're seeing the daily death toll that's even worse than it was at the peak of the first wave. So that feels really grim, but at least, you know, I, I, my parents haven't been vaccinated yet, but I've got friends whose parents have been vaccinated. I've got friends with disabilities who are very clinically vulnerable who've been vaccinated. So that does start to feel more hopeful, I think. Yeah. And I suppose, I suppose as a journalist, like, how do you feel like about, I guess it's become more of a thing since we've heard Trump use the expression so much, the whole fake news, and you see all these sort of conspiracy theories and people talking about the vaccine and having these anti-vaxxers. Do you, do you think it's getting to a stage where, I don't know if it's because everyone kind of has a platform now and they can kind of spout out whatever information they want and people that follow that person on social media, what can believe it. Do you worry that fake news is... It, is really becoming a thing now where all these conspiracies kind of flying around and you know you're hearing about people that just uh, uh, for whatever reason I think there's some ridiculous theories out there but for whatever reason very anti taking the vaccine. I think it is really concerning and I think there's always been conspiracy theories around there's always you know we've lived with anti-vaxxerism for a long time as well I think social media does make it easier for these things to spread. But at the same time, I think you've got very prominent sort of COVID skeptics, lockdown skeptics, people like Julia Hartley Brewer, who seem to make a lot of noise on social media. But and, and it's it's very damaging, I think, but they're probably not speaking to people you sort of reference it yourself too much beyond their own tribe so I think the really challenging question is in this age of social media and when things spread so virally on a platform like whatsapp it's what can you do to sort of counter fake news and actually it's quite a difficult thing to do and one of the worst things you can do we know from a lot of the research on strategic comms and how you sort of counter fake news and misinformation, that one of the worst things you can do is to myth bust and sort of say, people are saying this, here's exactly why they're wrong. Because actually what the research suggests is that that makes people believe the fake stuff even more because repeating it gives it added prominence. And debunking and myth busting if people don't trust you really doesn't work that well mm. so it's often particularly with sort of vaccines I think you've seen Sadiq Khan do this quite well in the last few weeks of the pandemic um if you follow his social media account it's not referencing the myths at all and the fake news it's just putting out um quite simply the message that you want to get you know across that these vaccines are safe that they're life-saving, but it's really important that you take them, or if it's your parents, you encourage them to take them. Um, so yeah, it's it's worrying, but I think we've got to understand better how to counter it. And often 
you know, even on one level when you're on social media, for example, when, you know, some of these people are shock jocks, right? They're looking for the, they're looking to kind of, you know, annoy people to get a reaction. And sometimes you just see people quote tweeting them on Twitter and you're like, you're just falling into their trap because it gives them a lot more oxygen. But it is, it is tricky because totally ignoring them maybe doesn't feel like the solution either. Yeah, it's just, well, it, it's just like, you know, I understand, you understand frustration and you understand people sort of having that desire to w- want to go out there and do things. And, mm. you know, especially young people, it must be really tough for them. But when you're sort of hearing these theories that are kind of being taken seriously, like the Bill Gates one, I think's the, I'm sure you've probably heard that, that's the one that sort of keeps, for whatever reason, has like a really, thousands and thousands of people believe that for whatever reason, Bill Gates wants to track us all and, and all this. Um, but you know, it's, it's just, like you say, just dangerous where, I mean, do you think, I guess it comes down to Trump, for example, freedom of speech and his Twitter got banned and and things like that. But is, is there kind of a balance in between that we've got to kind of find, well, we can't sort of cut people's opinions away, but we've got to monitor it to some degree because it it can really, especially, um, vulnerable people that can read this stuff and believe it and it could really affect them. Yeah, well, I do think that social media platforms have a responsibility not to spread disinformation. Now, there are lots of people who are really worried about social media platforms themselves coming down as the arbiter of, say, what's scientifically accurate or not. Mm. And, you know, some of those concerns, I think, are really valid. But at the end of the day, these social media platforms, they are acting like publishers. They're, they're putting out information out there. Fine, it's produced by other people, but they're pushing, pu- pushing information out there that is consumed by millions and millions of people. So, um, you know, I, I do think they've got a responsibility, but I think we probably need to have a bigger conversation about what their responsibilities are as publishers and how they take those calls and how we can make sure that it doesn't slip into censorship because that would be really damaging. That said... You know, for me, there is no free speech right to spread really damaging disinformation, stuff that we know just isn't true, for example, and that is really harmful to people's health. So it's free speech has always been a case of balancing, um, you know, your right to say something against the very real harm it could cause somebody else. Mm. Um, So I I think we've got to have a smarter way of... um, of responding to some of these things because um yeah other otherwise i think that's where some of the damage of these social media platforms comes from yeah and i, I think you know, sort of going back to trump again uh, you know it's kind of worrying like all that misinformation going out there and like people that stormed the capitol building for example generally generally believe that the election millions and millions of voters were frauded or stolen or whatever or states were stolen and these people stormed the Capitol building because they were that convinced they were doing something, in their opinion, in their eyes, completely justified, completely, you know, we're restoring the Capitol and all this. And you saw some of them quite family orientated people when I was seeing some of the clips, you know, people, you know, fam- from families and things like that. But Trump has kind of put that out there on his Twitter that this is stolen. This is, you know, that it's an attack against the country and, and um, you know, the election was was rigged and it's just such a dangerous thing that's allowed to be out there I think yeah I agree with you and I suppose to be fair to Twitter in the end it started to put health warnings on some of this stuff but I Mm. think it came far too late Mm. but it's a difficult thing isn't it it's like 
this guy is also president of the United States. He's been yeah. elected by like tens of, you know, by millions of Americans. So it, yeah, it's, it's, I thought, you know, it was great to see Twitter eventually take the moves that they did, but like, make no mistake, that's a big deal taking on the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that one of the reasons why things got as bad as they did with Trump and why we saw, you know, what was basically an insurrection in the Capitol uh, was because Trump hasn't been held to account for his lies and too many in the media have kind of like indulged them um, uh, and not reported them as lies from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's just that influence he has on people. Like it's almost, you know, we sort of, you know, talk about being kind and things like that. But when you have followers of Donald Trump, seeing him speak to people so appallingly on Twitter, like he's called, he's been derogatory towards women and, you know, he's attacking, you know, he called Kim Jong-un a fat rocket man or something like that at some point. And when people see, you know, the person that you you follow as the leader of the country speak in that way, you think that that's acceptable acceptable as well to behave Mm. like that, you know? And I think that that's something that you've got to be really careful about. I mean, I I think he's probably more bothered about Twitter taking his account down than he is losing the president of the United States because he's that that kind of person. He's probably, if he had the choice, I think he'd be like, I want my Twitter account back. (laughs) Yeah, you may be right. (laughs) So, I mean, how how have you been doing about, uh, I guess, emotionally, mentally, physically over the last um, year? Like, has it affected you? Have you had your good and bad moments over this last year? Yeah, I mean, it's, I've not, I suppose I've not found it too bad because I don't have kids. So I haven't sort of found myself unexpectedly homeschooling for weeks (laughs) on end. I've got the kind of job I can do from home fairly easily. Um, I live by myself. You know, I've got a nice flat. That's, you know, it's funny, actually, because I'm a total extrovert. So I never used to really spend that much time in my flat before the pandemic. I'd either be at the gym or, you know, socialising in the evenings or whatever. Um, and I'd be out a lot of the weekend as well. So I've been spending way, way more time at home. So I just, you know, I was like, I, I took a bit of time to like chuck out literally half the contents of my flat at the start of the first lockdown, which was quite cathartic, actually. So I feel really lucky because I've got like a nice space, nice quiet space to work in. Like obviously, because you live by yourself, the downside of that is uh, sometimes it gets a bit lonely. And I did during the first lockdown, um, you know, I went kind of like maybe two and a half, three months with just going out for walks and, you know, having loads of like chats with friends over Zoom. Uh, I, I do this weekly Zoom pub quiz with a big bunch of friends, which has been oh, a load of fun. you still do that? You still do that? I, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I my, friend, my, own... my friend's amazing who did it. And um, she, yeah, it, it, it's really big. So, you know, we'll have like five or six teams and it used to be weekly during the first lockdown, then it went to monthly and now it's gone back to bi-week, you know, we're back in lockdown, but that's really, really good fun. So, so I had lots of digital interaction, but you know, there, there was like a sort of two and a half months period where I didn't really see anyone else but actually it's really interesting I mean I feel very lucky because I have got somewhere I've got a job I can do from home um you know I've got somewhere nice to live and um I think actually it's living by yourself although it can be a bit lonely sometimes there are real upsides in terms of not having to negotiate your space with someone constantly when you're living in sort of quite cramped conditions by trying to work from home, trying to homeschool the kids. So it hasn't been too too bad for me, I think. And actually, it's the important lesson for me has been um, I actually quite like my own company, which I didn't realise before. So, you know, it's been quite nice just sort of pottering around my flat, 
you know, not doing very much some weekends. I've actually kind of really enjoyed that aspect of it. So it slowed me down. So, you know, obviously it's been kind of horribly stressful because you worry about all the people that you love and there's a pandemic going on. But um, I haven't, I, I feel a lot luckier than a lot of people um, because my sort of living circumstances haven't been too bad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, over this last year, is there anything that you've perhaps discovered about yourself, spend having more time by yourself? Is there anything that you've kind of learned about yourself or reflected on? Like, for example, I, I, I've I recently discovered over lockdown that I do like my routines and things. But now because this last year we haven't really had a routine, it's been a bit, whether it be my writing routine when I'm going to be on my desk working. But now because I have all that time to kind of work as I please from home and to some extent, it's like, oh, I don't really like this. I kind of have my little, I like my little slots where I know that I'm going to be writing and working and doing admin there and there. Is there anything like that you've discovered about yourself or took up a new hobby or anything like that over the last year so I guess I, well, one of the things that I've discovered is I'm really good at doing not very much <laughs> okay. I, I'm quite good at just sort of pottering around and it's amazing how quickly a day can go if you've not got that much on and you're not working like just watching a bit of Netflix going out for a walk mm. so I guess it's taught me that I can really enjoy a slower pace of life than I've had to date uh which has been sort of quite a nice realization as it were and it was I mean it was really nice over like I mean I, I do really miss aspects of my old lifestyle and you know there's a bit of me that just can't wait to go to a party and stand in a sweaty kitchen with you know <laughs> 20 tipsy people again yeah. <laughs> and that feels like quite a long way off still <laughs> but um you know I really enjoyed I, I mean I loved last summer it really felt like things were getting better when we could sort of go and like socialize yeah. with mates and have a meal outdoors or like you know book an outdoor table at a pub so, um, you know, I, I really miss that. But I, I realised I can go without that for quite a while, actually, and miss it, but not miss it too much. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think that's that's the kind of biggest takeaway. Like, sometimes it's really good to just slow down. Like, I did, I did this sort of um, self-taught meditation course on an app. Um, really enjoyed that. So, yeah, it's just, it's just actually I've, yeah, a slower pace of life hasn't uh, sort of hasn't been the sort of boring lifestyle that I thought it might be, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, do, do you think, I suppose, the relaxation of restrictions over the Christmas period has kind of come back to bite us on the arse a bit? Oh, I think so, for sure. And I think one of the things that's really sad about our response, actually, has been that the government doesn't seem to learn have learned the lessons from the first lockdown, the government really acted too late there. We know it. We know that they really loosened up too quickly, um, which led to sort of the uptick of cases. It was a slow uptick, but it was really starting to happen in August and September. And then, you know, we knew about this new variant and that it was more infectious, kind of like early to mid-December. And really, that was the time when the prime minister should have taken a step back and said, we're just not going to be able to do Christmas in this way, guys. But it really, he waited till the last possible minute to sort of uh, announce that some areas couldn't have Christmas, you know, couldn't celebrate Christmas with household mixing at all. But the, you know, there's a big chunk of the country that could still mix. You know, where my sister lived, she, you know, she knows people who got together and all of the people who mixed, you know, apart from a couple in these extended family gatherings. It was always in the all within the rules, but they all picked up COVID as a result. So it definitely, definitely has come back to bite us. And I just, 
you know, everyone can say, oh, well, benefit of hindsight, but it, you didn't need hindsight to see this coming. Mm. Actually, if you, um, you know, there were scientists back in October, November, saying, let's bring in a circuit breaker lockdown more quickly. And we really, really shouldn't all be getting together for Christmas. This is one Christmas. This is one year. And I think the prime minister just didn't want to believe it. And well, I think one of the issues with um, a virus that grows exponentially like this and spreads exponentially is what the paradox of it is that you need to take action when things don't feel that bad to stop having to take tougher and longer action later on. And it takes quite a lot of political leadership to say to people, I know things don't feel that bad at the moment. You know, daily deaths maybe only say like 30 a day, even though that's obviously an awful tragedy in itself, but it's not, you know, it's not where we were back in March. But I'm sorry, we're going to have to be really restrained and we're going to have to put some restrictions back in because otherwise it's going to get worse later on and we're going to have to do more. Um, and you need political leadership for that. And this prime minister has not really demonstrated that leadership at any point during this pandemic, I think. And I think that's why we found ourselves in a terrible situation. Obviously, the new, more infectious variant has also contributed to that, but there's no question that government decisions have contributed to that as well. And that's part of the reason why we've got a dreadful, you know, daily death toll at the moment, you know, over a thousand people a day. And why schools are closed, for example, I think if the government had taken much earlier action, there's a chance that certainly we wouldn't have had to shut primary schools this term. Mm. Um, and that's like massively, massively damaging for children. So, yeah, I do think one of the reasons why we're here is political decisions that were made in September, October, November, December. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is a big worry, I think, for, for kids as well. Like, you know, for kids that... Of whether they would have had their first year at primary school this year, their first year at secondary school um, this year, it's almost going to be like they're almost going to have to teach kids how to socialise with each other again. Because mm. there's going to be so it's going to be so weird, sort of having kids having close contact again, almost. Yeah, I think we just haven't processed as a society the massive impact this is going to have mm. on a whole generation of children and young people, and I think it's true you know, whether you're sort of 18, 19, gone for your first year at university because the government told you it was going to be okay, you've taken on that debt and all of a sudden you're not even able to go to your university campus and you're learning via Zoom lectures. You know, that's like lots of us having to make big sacrifices, but students have taken on massive debt to pay for that sacrifice at the moment, which doesn't really feel fair. So, you know, there's that. There's, you know, babies and toddlers who aren't going to you know, baby groups and socializing with other children um you know there's it, it, all I think for all children it's really really difficult not to be able to socialize see your friends obviously the children for whom it's the worst for are children who um you know suffer abuse and neglect in the home and school is one of the main ways that we pick up on that as a society and there hasn't been that safety net for some children um, in recent months. So it's it's a really, really big cost that children and young people are bearing. And I think one of the worst aspects of the government's response is it just doesn't seem that bothered. It doesn't seem to care that much. There is a ton of stuff that you could have done up to this point to try and reduce that impact on children and young people. No one's saying you could take it away altogether, but there's stuff you could have done. For example, you know, we've called for a ton of stuff from the Observer where I work, for example, over the summer, 
you know, things were getting back to normal for a bit. It felt like it was outdoor yeah. socialising. Why didn't the government put on a programme of structured outdoor activities for children over the summer who'd missed weeks and weeks and weeks of school? What was that about? They just didn't bother. So it really feels like there is none of the extraordinary effort that you would want and expect to sort of try and do right by children and young people. This just doesn't feel like a government that is that invested in their future. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. I mean, is, is it hard for you as a, as a journalist sometimes? Because I guess, like, you know, not to get bogged down by such, like, negative stuff all the time. Because I imagine, yes. like, I, mean, I mean, you think, like, you know, you've got you've got COVID, you've got the daily death counts, then you've got, like, the Brexit stuff that's been going on, obviously the George Floyd, that, you know, Trump yeah. doing it. God, there's just been that... so much to get angry about in the yeah. last year. So much, kind of, in terms of the pandemic, from a social injustice point of view. And, yeah, it is really, really hard to switch off from it sometimes when it's your job to write about it. So you have to be really tuned in. And then, obviously, you know, I'm a journalist on the centre-left. I used to work in the sort of charity sector as a campaigner. Like, this stuff makes... There's, you know, there's a reason why I write about this stuff. It's because it makes me really, really angry. So it is difficult. And then, you know, I think social media compounds all that. The debate on social media, on Twitter, can be really high octane, sometimes quite bad faith. Um, you know, it really encourages people to take a very strong side and like stick to it. Doesn't really encourage considered debate. So that stuff can be really, really hard to switch off from. Um, I, I do manage, I'm, I'm pretty good at sometimes, so for example, you know, I work for a Sunday paper, so I usually share my articles on a Sunday morning, and I've sort of learned over the sort of weeks that you could, as a Sunday newspaper journalist, you know, your most intense time comes towards the end of the week, but then there's so much going on on a Sunday politically, there's all the political shows, etc. So you could just spend your whole day on Twitter, but actually, like, Sundays are one of my most important days off for me. Um, so I really try and zone out of it. And actually, I'm I'm lucky. I, I, I'm fairly good at doing that. But sometimes it does really get to me. And sometimes I just find stuff making me, like, really, really angry. And, it, you know, it, and you just sort of feel yourself getting really angry about it. Like, you'll hear about something awful that the government's done. You know, the way it's treating asylum seekers, um, you know, in, in, in a global pandemic, for example, like housing them in just the most terrible awful conditions on like converted army barracks where they've got like one toilet between 40 people and no protection you know no protection for people once a few people in their midst have tested positive for covid like you just hear about that stuff it makes you so angry but and I can feel myself getting enraged and then you just have you just have to try and take a step back from it because no one's got the emotional there's so much to be angry about at the moment and no one's got the emotional capacity or energy to just sustain that so yeah yeah so I, I, I'm quite good at taking a step back from it at times but then at another time it would just really get me and I'm like right okay I need to I need to just like take a step back for a few hours yeah well it's hard it's hard to stay away from it like you know I like to watch the news um, I usually have Sky News on and but yeah. recently you know recently I'm trying to stick stick away from it because sometimes if you watch if I watch the news from the you know the um start of the news for half hour 45 minutes or whatever at the end of it you're kind of feeling oh, I feel like crap right now yeah. <laughs> just because you've got it's gone through everything and it's gone it's just showing the you know the obviously it's important to see what's going on in hospitals and things like that but 
you know, it's it's lots and lots of, of, of sad news. Even you know, even from early in the year when you not only just COVID, but you know, the Brexit um, sort of divide and like George Floyd and there's stuff about Madeleine McCann and they found a person. You know, it was all all this negative stuff for, for there was like yeah. five big stories like I think throughout earlier last year where it was just so much negative stuff going on. So I think sometimes yeah. you've got to be aware of what you're letting into your space sometimes. And I think totally. Just... And that's why I tell you, like, a, I, a really good way for me to switch off is Netflix. So mm, I've, been, well, I've been getting, that's another thing, I've, I've been getting incredible value out of my Netflix subscription okay. over the past 10 Same. months. Um, <laughs> like, someone that didn't really do too much streaming, I have, I now have Netflix, Amazon Prime and Disney Plus. I have all oh, three Oh, do you? Oh, I've just got Netflix and Amazon Prime. I haven't <laughs> gone down the road to Disney Plus yet, although I was thinking of it because I quite like to re-watch Hamilton, but... <laughs> oh, Hamilton, yeah. There's some good stuff on it, actually. Um, but yeah, what, what have you been watching on Netflix anyway? What have you been kind of So I on? just got really into Shit's Creek, which I love. Um, okay. And I'd heard so many good reviews about it from other people. Uh, I, it took me a little while to get into it. I was like, I don't quite get this. Why is this so good? Like for the first four mm-hmm. or five episodes. But then from like about six episodes in, I just, I was like, wow, this is amazing. It's so funny, so light. Episodes only 20 minutes. So like... I'll often watch one while I'm on my lunch break. And it's now got to a stage like I'm, I've had to really slow it down because I binged about three series in three weeks mm-hmm. after Christmas. And I was like, oh my God, it's going to be over too quickly. So I often do this with series I like. So I force myself to watch other things. So I space out Shit's Creek more. So I've really enjoyed Shit's Creek. Oh, oh do, you, do you know what? During the start of the, like towards the start of the pandemic, mm-hmm. I really got into Friday Night Lights and I loved it so much. I haven't watched the last six or seven episodes yet because I didn't want it to be over. So I think I'm at some point I'm going to go back and re-watch it all from season one and then like save the last six or seven episodes as a treat. But I, I honestly think Friday Night Lights is one of the best things I've seen. Nice. So um, yeah, I got really into Friday Night Lights. I also like a little bit of cheese. So um, there was a, this amazing around Christmas time, this really brilliant uh, Norwegian Christmas drama called Home for Christmas, where it sounds a bit naff, but it's it was really, really good. And it's just like a bit like a sort of quite smart, dark rom-com in Norwegian um so that was really good yeah so yeah just kind of that sort of stuff did you did you watch Tiger King did you see that no do you know what I haven't watched Tiger King that was a bit too crazy was it okay I should give that a go probably at some point (laughs) but um something that I didn't think was real and then when you realize it's really like this is real like wow yeah um but yeah that that was good um, Tiger King and uh, yeah I've, I mean I've binge watched quite a few things like old stuff as well um, I mean did you I mean what did you think of you know um, early, I think last year you, some of the old comedies getting taken off Netflix because you know Dean sort of going back to the sort of uh, the race like Little Britain for example I think In Between has got taken off some of the things as well do you think that stuff like that we, we sort of live in a world now where we, we can't have that on TV anymore or do you kind, or is it kind of nice to go back and kind of think well, look how far we've come where this was acceptable when you were, when I was a teenager and now we can't look at it in a, in a horrific way. I mean, some of it's really funny, Little Britain, but, he, but then some of but it I, I watch... It's so cringe, isn't it? <laughs> some it's of like, it's, yeah. yeah, some of it's tough Yeah, to I mean, I, I'm not one to think that you need to take this stuff down. Um, mm. I think it's quite good in some ways to see what was okay back then. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's good, like, if you're watching it, like it's, it's just good to keep in mind, like, you know, uh, 
and like if you know if you're watching it like I don't have kids but if I was going to watch that stuff with my kids I'd like talk about I mean I probably wouldn't to be honest but like I would talk about it with them afterwards so yeah I think I think maybe taking it down goes too far um but um but yeah I I, th- I think you know in some ways like yeah I can't like men behaving badly for example I haven't watched that for like I remember thinking that was really funny at the time but I'm sure now if I watch that I'd just be like my god this is just so sexist <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no yeah I think that's well like, I mean I did like in between us to be fair it's really funny actually I I haven't really so I used to really love the West Wing and I've oh, yeah. watched it I watched it once at, I mean basically when it was first on TV and then I rewatched it a few years ago, and then I I, I started rewatching the sit first series last summer, and I couldn't I didn't I was just really shocked. I, and again, it shows you how far you've come personally. I just didn't pick up on the rampant sexism in the first series of The West Wing the first couple of times I watched it. But there's so much of it there, you know, like just the way the female characters are like treated as accessories, the way that they're talked down to. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting going back and watching something like that because you know the first series of the West Wing was what like 2000 it is so dated now and it was considered to be this kind of like really liberal progressive tv program at the time whereas now you go back and watch it and you're like oh my god these people are awful <laughs> so um so yeah so I, I I I think it's quite hard you can't really expunge tv shows like of the times that they were in and I think it's good to go back and watch this stuff sometimes and just realize what was acceptable as little time as 20 years ago yeah I mean I mean speaking of kind of I guess being shocked did you I mean did you see that poster the government put out recently of the NHS with the women's stay at home kind of thing oh it's awful yeah Yeah. oh that was so bad I, I I honestly it was so bad I don't understand how you know how they got put out a sort of a graphic that mm. involved the only people doing housework childcare, and homeschooling were women and the only man in that graphic was like you know having a cuddle on the sofa I just don't understand how that because yeah. you know there were someone had to design that thing and then some people in government would have had to sign it off and you would expect more than one person would sign off a graphic like that before it goes out on social media what were they thinking it's really hard because you know you 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 can tell that this is a government that doesn't understand women because and that there aren't enough women in senior positions because a lot of the decision making in this pandemic has given far too little thought to the impact that this is going to have on like women's working lives and women's employment um but there's that, and then there's like putting out a graphic like that, and you're just like, how did that get past anyone? Honestly. Yeah, who gave up the okay? It was just like, was there? I mean, what were the ones that got rejected as well? If there was like, I don't know, yeah, a few, a that's few a ones. really good question. I dread to think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you, I guess do you have um, do you think now um, Keir Starmer's the lead with the Labour Party? Do you see him as someone that you know more so than Jeremy Corbyn? It can be someone that can lead the, the the party to a better sort of recovery and uh, potentially be prime minister. Yeah, for sure. I think he's got a lot of potential and I don't think he's doing, I think he's doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Labour and the Tories are sort of neck and neck in the polls. That's not bad for an opposition leader. He's only been around for, what is it, just over a year now. Um, I, I think he... 
I think he doesn't have the charisma of a really winning politician. Like, I mean, he's, he doesn't have Tony Blair's charisma, for example. Um, and that's, I, I mean, I do, I think there's a, a higher threshold for Labour leaders to become prime minister than there is for Conservatives. Like, it's just the electoral system means it's like hard work. And so, you know, we'll look at Tony Blair, he's the only sort of Labour leader that's won a general election, three general elections in a long time. So um, I, I guess as I do, I do think he, Starmer is solid. I think he's competent. I think he comes across as competent. I think he appeals to the kinds of voters that, that Labour needs to attract if it's got a chance of winning the next election. But I don't think he has that kind of like really special zing. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe that's not a problem. And I think, you know, Labour can win a general election, but also the Conservatives can lose a general election. And I do think the Conservatives are in a bit of a mess. And I do think, I mean, obviously, I hope it's not the case, but I, I fear that the economy is going to be doing quite badly in four years. Um, three to four years uh, and that's going to be you know people don't have anyone to blame for that but the government so I do I, I do think that you know Labour's got Labour's definitely got a chance of winning the next election. Mm -hmm. and, well, where do you think it went I guess so wrong for Labour in the last election do you think it was more not really having a stance on Brexit where they weren't remain or leave or was it the fact that Jeremy Corbyn just wasn't coming across as someone the people wanted as prime minister because it, it was a bit weird. It was it was when Theresa May had the election against Jeremy Corbyn. Also being a Labour supporter, it all seemed quite positive. Even though mm. the, you know Theresa May technically won and got a hung parliament, it all seemed quite. It seemed like there were mm. you know I remember seeing clips of people singing "Oh Jeremy Corbyn" at festivals and things like that, and you know it seemed that there was like a a movement behind him. But then it, I don't mm. know where it went so wrong. Jeremy well, I think it was a mixture of stuff. So absolutely, like Brexit played a role. And the fact mm. that there was no winning position on Brexit for Labour to take, like there just wasn't, Labour was always going to get hammered on Brexit. Um, so that was definitely a big part of it. And I think it would have made it actually difficult for any Labour leader to win. I think um, it was Jeremy Corbyn himself, no question. I don't think people in general, voters in general, you know, enough voters saw Jeremy Corbyn as a potential prime minister. Um, I think the anti-Semitism stuff damaged Labour. I think Jeremy Corbyn's sort of reaction to um, the sort of Novichok uh, poisoning uh, and sort of his, him not coming down hard enough on Russia. I think that was something that was talked about in focus groups. I think that really cut through um, and kind of stuck in people's heads in terms of their perceptions of Corbyn. So I think Jeremy Corbyn was a really big problem. And I also think that, you know, the Tories kind of had a winning formula um, in, uh, in late 2019. Everyone was sick of Brexit and they told everyone they were just going to get Brexit done. And, you know, that was something that both people who'd voted for Remain but were just sick of hearing about Brexit could go for and people who, you know, had voted for Brexit and just wanted to get it done. So it was a very, very effective campaign slogan, even, obviously, even though obviously it's kind of complete nonsense in the sense that there's no such thing as getting Brexit done. We're literally going to be talking about our relationship with the EU for the next 10 years now. Um, so there was that. And, you know, Boris Johnson was popular. And I, I think gonna, that's I changing to, now. So, you know, I think it was Labour's weaknesses. So Labour's weaknesses were the Conservative strengths. It was like a complete mirror image. Like mm -hmm. Labour found it tough on Brexit and they had... A, a weak leader and the Tories had a leader with popular appeal and they had a great line on Brexit. Yeah no I was about to say I, I think you know if 
it had been another head-to-head between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, I think the election would have been very different. But for whatever reason, Boris kind of came in, and I guess it was just that, you know, that energy, I don't know what it is. He just came across as someone that could hold himself, I guess, a bit better in the House of Commons. And I guess you know, not always tell the complete truth. In some some things, he'd kind of just be able to blag his way out of certain things put to him quite yeah. well. He's quite well at doing that, just sort of blagging, you know, not answering, but kind of getting out of certain situations very well. Um, but yeah, it, it was, you know, interesting to see. I mean, you were advisor for Ed Miliband as well, weren't you? I was, yeah, yeah, back, yeah. In, back in the day now. So I joined Ed's team very soon after he became leader, so in 2010. Um, and I was there for like 18 months. So it feels like, I mean, it's got it's 10 years ago now. <laughs> um, so yeah, it feels like a long time ago. But, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I had to really, it was fun. Like I enjoyed it. Um, but at the end of the day, working for an opposition, it's like very, it's all about, I'm like, I, I was a policy person, really. Whereas when you're working at, for the opposition at that stage of opposition, it's all about the kind of politics. And um, I like politics, but, you know, frontline politics, it's got downsides too. Um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes it feels quite short termist. Um, So that's why in the end I decided, like I got a lot out of working at the frontline for 18 months. But um, in the end, yeah, I just I just decided to um, to do something else for a while. Yeah. And so, so when you're talking about like kind of those that frontline politics and you, you sort of spoke about, you know, being angry when you're right and you wanted to kind of get your opinions out there. Have you ever had to sort of deal with, I guess, the only word I can think of is trolls, whether it be online? And, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 100%. yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I imagine there's there's people that can kind of, you know, not agree with you, but put it in a proper you know, oh, in, yeah. in, like, in a nice when way. people engage in good faith and they disagree mm-hmm. with you, that can be quite a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, although you do have to check yourself because one of the things about writing down your views in a column is it makes you more wedded to your views, not less. So it's easy to sometimes be a bit too defensive when people are being constructively critical. So mm-hmm. I do try and check myself on that. But obviously you get, especially as like a, a female non-white journalist, you do get a lot of social media kind of crap basically not to put too fine a point on it and actually some of the worst kinds of abuse I've got is is like actually funnily enough when tweeting about anti-semitism um like it I mean twitter like anti-semitic sewer it's twitter it's just like a sewer so I've you know yeah I've I've, so and interestingly as a sort of journalist who seem to be on the center left not the like left left I get. I feel like I, I've got more Twitter abuse from the far left actually than the far right. Maybe it's because the far right just doesn't bother with me as much. I don't know. Um, but I mean, I don't get as much as some people, and I certainly wouldn't get as much as some female MPs, for example. And um, you just have to like maybe about three or four years ago when I used to get if I got a lot of abuse about a piece I'd written, I take it a lot more personally. Whereas now I just know you don't have to reply to them. You don't even have to read their stuff. You just hit block straight away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's I was going to say, you're quite good at shaking it off now. Because I guess, you know, I guess when you first have that, you're kind of thinking, why am I, why, why is it getting so horrible? Yeah. Like, what am I doing? It's yeah, and there's I, I no think... rhyme or reason to it. That's what no. you just have to remember. And some of them are bots at the end of the day. Some of them are literally mm. 
bots working in Russian troll farms. <laughs> yeah, and I think some people are just quite sad people that just feel that they need to, if it's not you, it's going to be someone else. It's just whoever at that time they yeah. can target for writing whatever it is yeah. and think, you know, I'm going to lay into this person now because exactly. I've had a crap day and I'm going to take it out on this person. Yeah. You know, because yeah. at the end of the day, the one thing they do have is a phone to, that will yeah. listen to them. And I do think there's more that the platforms could do to you know so obviously there's taking down really um offensive racist stuff and I don't think the platforms are good enough about that actually mm. um it seems like you have to be someone really high profile to and do something and then maybe they'll take you down or suspend you but I've I report racist abuse like a fair bit to Twitter and usually I get back a sorry this doesn't breach our guidelines and you're like okay it's really nasty and racist so I think but there, I think so I think there's more they could do in that sense but I also think there's more that they could do to cut down the number of trolls for example so you know um like so for example make making sure that maybe making it a bit tougher to verify your account in terms of phone numbers photos or whatever um you know maybe coming down a bit harder on anonymous accounts like some some people say anonymous accounts are really important because otherwise some people wouldn't be able to sort of take part on social media because of their jobs and their professional work I do see that point but I just wonder I think the balance is kind of wrong at the moment so I do think the platforms could be doing more to sort of make their spaces a bit nicer for people yeah no no I get I get that do, 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 do you I mean during your career like as a journalist have you do you think like now is one of the worst times for divisions yeah yeah, yeah. for sure um and it feels yeah yeah but the thing that I always remind myself because like it feels that way on news on particularly kind of panel news programs you know broadcasters often go for the most extreme views they can find it feels that way on twitter real life isn't like that though and it doesn't feel like that and i don't think that twitter mirrors the conversations that people have in their normal lives you'd never so, talk to anyone like that you'd never no talk exactly to like that. so i think it's really important to remember yeah there are cleavages in the country at the moment and yeah brexit was divisive but most people are way, way more pragmatic about Brexit than pundits who go on TV and people who tweet angry stuff on Twitter. So um, I, I, I do think it's bad, but I think it gets magnified in an unhelpful way by news programmes and by Twitter. And so that's what I always tell myself, like, you know, this isn't actually real life. And, you know, people are a lot worse on Twitter to the extent that they are on Twitter than they are in normal life. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, so was being a journalist something that you always wanted to do or did you just kind of fall into that naturally? No, or, I no? kind of fell into it. So I, I sort of started off like my professional life as a sort of policy wonk, a policy person. Mm. So I started off working for a couple of centre-left think tanks when I left university. Um, I've done some work, I've done a fair bit of work for the charity sector too, and, you know, in politics, working for Ed Miliband, but I never even really thought of myself as a writer or a journalist, and I just kind of fell into it by mistake, so um, I got asked to write an editorial for The Observer by their sort of ex-chief leader writer, because he knew I knew, like, a fair bit about education policy, and so I got a call out of the blue, like, a few years ago, just saying, oh, do you, do you fancy writing this in the paper, and I was like, yeah, sure and then I got off the phone I was like oh my god like I don't know if I can do this I've just agreed to something that I don't know if I can do so um and then I just sort of did it a bit free uh, did it freelance on the side and then that's how I kind of got into comment journalism but I am not somebody who would have 
ended up there by design because I wouldn't have ever really believed that I could kind of do it. So it's it's funny, isn't it? How you just, yeah. And I always feel a bit guilty when people ask me about how did you get into this? Like comment journalism is something that I'd really like to do. And then you kind of have to fess up and say, well, actually, I didn't really mean to end up doing this. I just kind of fell into it. And, you know, it never feels like that helpful in terms of passing on advice. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I never really saw myself as a writer or a journalist, but I absolutely love what I do now. I feel very, very lucky to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Has it brought its challenges over the years in terms of being a journalist, whether it be, is there like quite, is there quite bits of like competition for certain places or is it all quite a nice friendly circle? <laughs> um, I mean, it, journalism is competitive um, for sure. And but I I don't know I I found it okay because I think the older you get so I used to be quite competitive when I was younger and you know I was always always someone who did really well academically at school and at university and like one of the lovely things about getting older is you suddenly realise that you're not going to be the the absolute best at everything you do like you just can't be like there's going to be someone better than you and um, just getting a bit more chilled about that and kind of like seeing other people be really successful and be like that's brilliant for them like I can do that all kudos to them that's great so um yeah there is obviously that sort of competitiveness like on you know on twitter and stuff like but you know i i i i sort of find it okay because i think as long as you're chilled out about it and just enjoy your own work um and enjoy the own you know the opportunity i feel incredibly lucky and privileged like to have a column in a in a national newspaper i mean if someone had told me that 10 years ago i'd have thought they were absolutely crazy <laughs> so um yeah it's just kind of like I, I yeah it's just sort of allowing yourself to enjoy that a bit and um you know obviously j- journalism i think the really difficult thing about journalism now is because it's kind of a bit of a shrinking industry across the sort of piece um, there are fewer and fewer staff jobs and it can be really, really hard for young people to get into. And that's really, really tough. And I look at the generation of journalists above me and you think, oh, my God, they've got life so cushy. Like, you know, you get a jammy contract to write a column a week and, you know, they're probably way better paid than us in my generation. But then you look at the like younger generation and you're like, oh, my God, I'm so lucky. Like they're just so there just aren't enough opportunities out there. And like, you know, young people really have to like sort of you know start out freelance and kind of suck it up I mean obviously there are staff jobs and there are like trainee schemes but it's 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 a difficult industry to get into and there are loads of amazing people who are incredibly talented who really struggle so um so yeah so it's 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 kind of that that's that's sort of quite worrying and a big shame I think uh because I think the sort of you you really need the kind of like support of coming in as a young journalist or you know as a journalist at the start of their career not necessarily young but you know having like the support of an employer and a really good editor and um not everyone really gets to have that anymore mm-hmm. and I mean I mean obviously you know recently we saw the sort of the me too movement and stuff which was kind of in the sort of filming industry and the acting industry with Harvey Weinstein but like did have you ever had sin or been involved in any experiences like that where it's been a bit sexist or anything like that? For or sure. I mean, yeah. I won't talk about that. Oh, yeah, it's fine. But, yeah, but yeah, it does but happen. No, but yeah. for sure. For yeah. sure. I mean, it, journalism is just like any other industry, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, any industry, I think, where there are people with big egos, men with big egos, um, where there's a lot of kind of freedom 
and you know there's a lot of respect and they have like big public profiles like of course it goes on of course it happens um so yeah yeah it's definitely it's definitely a problem in journalism just like it is in politics and like the tv and film industry like you know these industries attract those types of personalities so yeah i mean i mean what are the i guess the biggest stories you feel that you've covered over your, your sort of career writing is there anything in particular that you've really got stuck into that you've really enjoyed writing so I really like I mean it's not like I enjoy it but <laughs> I'm really proud of the writing I've done about domestic abuse I suppose I, because yeah. I think it's a really I think it's just such a critical issue and I think there's such poor understanding in general still about how domestic abuse kind of manifests itself, how it feels to women, um, how coercive control works, and how actually women's responses to it just makes, you know, quite sort of patriarchal male institutions like the police, like the courts, they just don't understand the trauma that women have experienced and how it makes women act. And so they can't understand why a woman just doesn't leave if she's in a, been in an abusive relationship for three years. And they think it's her fault and they victim blame. So I think unpicking some of those myths is really, really important. So I've done kind of three or four columns on that, I suppose, over the last year. And that's a really, really important subject that I, mm. I feel I've written about. I also write quite a lot about children and young people um and you know one of the things that kind of like makes me most angry is you know the educational attainment gap the fact that we don't do more to give kids from poorer backgrounds the best start in life mm -hmm. and I've written a lot about universities and the injustice of the fact that predominantly middle-class young people get to go to university and even though they're taking on debt and you know the fees are nine thousand pounds a year they still get a nice big fat subsidy from the government of about you know 25 28k per young person on average to go to university and young people who don't go to university get pretty much zilch and that to me is like a huge social injustice so I've written a lot about that and um you know what we need to do to address that so that's another kind of one of my favorite perennial topics to go back to yeah, and I suppose, you know, talking about domestic abuse as well, I suppose over this last year, is it more important to write about than anything because people are caught trapped potentially with yeah. abusive partners. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, that's the thing. It's sort of like, you know, there are, there are so many things that are really tricky about lockdown, particularly if you haven't got, like, a decent, safe, warm home to live in. But for people in abusive relationships you know, whether that's women, children, or even, you know, some men, but, you know, domestic abuse is a gendered crime and it really, really affects children. And then there's obviously, you know, child abuse and neglect as well. Like the suffering that is going on behind those four walls mm. is just kind of, it's awful to think about. Yeah. And do you think as a society, we, we don't really realise the, I mean, not real, maybe not realising is the wrong phrase, but we sort of, are distracted by stupid things like Bill Gates trying to vaccinate people and think that's more of an issue than d domestic abuse and, and things like that. I think sometimes I social think media... it's getting better on domestic abuse. So I think gradually understanding is growing. And I think actually there've been some, there's been some really powerful like TV. I think popular culture is such a important way of educating people, helping people understand the realities of life for people. Um, 
and you know actually cre creating some appetite for social change I think in some ways it can be even more powerful than journalism so there have been some really good dramas about coercive control over the last sort of two three years but I think you know it's been part of you know it's not necessarily mainstream but it's been a storyline on the arches I think it's been on one of the two big soaps like there was this really good um series of channel four dramas called I am and then a woman's name and there was one on coercive control and one on financial abuse so I, I think I think you know understanding is getting better but we are we are a really long way off giving domestic abuse the same sort of priority as other types of kind of violent crime and um so yeah we've got we've got a long way to go and I think the media are quite complicit in it as well and I've written about this too often when we tell the story of domestic abuse and what happens when a woman gets murdered, the story that is told is he loved her really. He was a really good dad. He just lost control in the moment. And that is a load of bollocks not to be mm -hmm. sort of too, you know, um, I've spoken to academics, a woman called uh, Jane Monkton Smith, who has, you know, mapped what happens when women are killed by their partners or their ex-partners and invariably, the killing is the ultimate act of control. It's not a man losing control. And there are tons of warning signs there that relate to ongoing kind of domestic abuse. And, you know, because we're not good at picking up on them as a society, women lose their lives when we could have prevented it. So I think that, you know, we, we've got a long way to go before we get telling these stories right to help people mm. understand what domestic abuse is. And, you know, one of the stories that I wrote about last year was the BBC screening a documentary about um, Oscar Pistorius, you know, where even the press release kind of like, you, you literally wouldn't have realised that he'd been convicted of a murder. You'd have thought mm. he was some amazing Olympic athlete who just happened to, oops, accidentally kill his girlfriend. Um, and it's just really shocking and disgusting, but that is very typical of how domestic abuse gets portrayed in the media and in popular culture, although that is changing. So, so yeah, there's a long way to go on it yet, I think. Yeah, well, even that, that case in America, it was like last year, was it Chris, Chris Watts? Have you heard about this case? Oh, I had to, I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah. can't remember that Well, one. He, he, he's like, become, he's in jail, obviously, but, you know, he obviously killed his two little girls and his oh, wife. It's just awful, yeah. Just because he wanted to go off with another partner. And, you know, it's a big documentary on Netflix. But, like, he became, like, because it got so much coverage in the media, he became a celebrity, whereas he was getting fan mail in, in jail. And we know that you love your kids, really. And they tried... There was some aspects of like social media and things like that. They're trying to paint the the wife that he killed as the as the bad. But person again, again, that's what you're so right to pick up on that because that is often what happens. So the woman gets dehumanized who is killed. She often get ends up getting dehumanized in this, and a lot. So much of the court case is about his lawyers pleading for his character and getting character witnesses and stuff, and that gets reported. No one speaks for the woman, and she's often, you know, um, you know depicted as like the other woman or a woman who was having an affair and it's like mm. oh she deserved it didn't she because she's doing that thing and that's just so like it's obviously not said but that's what you feel like the implication is and it's just so shocking um yeah. so yeah we we and it happens again and again and again and again so I think we've got a lot to learn on it yeah I mean what one new story I saw that just you know come up a few months ago and it was you know sort of following on from a tragic case a few years ago was you know remember the the Philpot murders with the fire and the children that died um Mick Philpot and um 
obviously his partner that was kind of involved um, with him has been released from prison. But although it was a really evil thing that happened, I, I didn't like how some of the media tried to play out that it was the fact that they were a lower class family on benefits, which is oh, why, it's just awful. you know, and it was just like, well, that's you it's can't so portray. Yeah, you can't portray the fact that they were, you know, Mick was Mick Philpot was an evil person that ended up yeah. getting sick and d- of his domestic children. abuse happens right across the social spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. it happens in wealthy families, it happens in poor families, it happens in middle class families. Yeah. Well, it's been, you know, um, there has been, I guess, some positive things that we've seen over the last year. Like, you know, um, well, there'll be hope he makes recovery. Captain Tom, for example, what he did for the NHS. You know, is, is, it, is it nice when you get those, those moments, I guess, to see, that you see on the news? Totally. And like, yeah, I mean, God... In times like these, you've got to love a good news story, right? Yeah. And I think you've noticed it in the last year. I think people like really grasp onto the good news things because mm. there's just so feels like there's so little of it about. Yeah. Well, I, I always remember there's maybe a year or two ago there was a clip of you and another colleague where it, it, it did the rounds a bit because she was obviously was she very nervous about being on TV or? Oh, I remember that one. It was with Sherelle Jacobs, yeah, and she was wearing yeah. the one where she's wearing the pink coat and I'm wearing yes. the pink coat. Yeah, so um, I, I know that's just her style. That's kind of how she does oh, okay. TV. But like, basically, people thought she'd like been doing drugs or something because she's got this really. Yeah. She's brilliant. She's a great commentator. Like, obviously, other side of the political spectrum to me, but she's got quite an intense scare. So a stare. So we went totally viral. Like that BBC clip had yeah. five million views or something. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Like basically, I got this text message, like WhatsApp from a mate saying oh my God, there's like a clip of you on the BBC with this girl and it's like got over a million views. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. what? What are you on about? So I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah, it's really funny. And the Ministry of Sound tweeted it and Joanna Lumley tweeted it. I was like, yeah, it's funny. I've, I've never gone viral like that before. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that was really funny. But she, do you know what? She was a brilliant sport about it. And we had a, we sort of, yeah, had a good laugh about it. And I wrote a little funny piece about it for the Observer. And she was a very good sport about that too. So yeah, yeah, I think there was uh, lots of memes going around. Like when you're still out, when you're still out on the session, you've got to be yeah. on TV. Yeah. Like, <laughs> That was, that was a I can I can uh yeah guarantee everyone she was not high <laughs> <laughs> no of course not um so I mean what how would you like I suppose to see us emerge from this coronavirus world well I mean I'm not one of these people who thinks like we're never going to go back to something approaching normal because I think we are I suppose you know the thing is so I think that a massive negative thing like a pandemic it can be the spur for positive change as well eventually but all these people who say oh well maybe maybe we're all gonna like commute less and it's gonna be great for the environment and blah 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 like that stuff doesn't happen automatically social campaigners have to make it happen so I do think that there may be some positive changes to our lifestyles that we have coming out of this and you know I'm somebody who thinks that we should be um you know it would be nice if we all worked a bit less and have more leisure time uh that involves paying people in low paid work more though so they can Mm -hmm. afford to do it otherwise it's just going to be something for the rich and wealthy but you know I think maybe if this made us reassess like the value of socializing with friends and family and investing in those relationships that would be a good thing I don't know if it's going to though um I do think that 
if you've got a job that you can do from home, I think we we probably won't see the return to office working in the same way. And I think that's no bad thing. Like all that commuting that people do when they don't necessarily need to do it, what a waste. Obviously not everyone can work from home um, who has an office job and there's, you know, millions and millions of people without office jobs. But I, I do wonder, we'll, we'll probably see like people working more in a way where you sort of do maybe two days in the office, three days from home, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, but I, I don't think there are going to be massive, massive changes as a result of this. I think we probably will go back to something approaching what life was before. We don't tend to take big lessons from events like these, like we just don't. Um, you know, it'd be great if we sort of thought about our lifestyles in relation to climate change. And if we thought about, you know, big global challenges like microbial resistance in a different way because we've just lived through a pandemic and we know what like a massive public health shock like that does to us but in general as a society I think we're very good at just forgetting the bad stuff as quickly as we can and I think we probably will yeah well Sonia it's been amazing talking to you today I look forward to reading more of your stuff and seeing you on Sky News I do enjoy seeing you on Sky oh, News oh great when, when thank you when you're, when you're it's on good there to know someone's panel. tuning in to oh me, I'm, I'm uh, in I'm in talking about the papers in front of my bookcase <laughs> in my front room <laughs> oh yes it's brilliant right well, thanks for coming on and uh, yeah cheers well, thanks cheers. for having me Lawrence great thank you. So yeah, great talking to Sonia there. Um, yeah, thanks to her for coming on. It was just great talking to her about uh, you know stuff that's going on at the minute with, with the news. But hopefully, very soon she'll have something other than COVID to cover. <laughs> Let's hope um, it must be a very interesting time to be a journalist right now because there's lots going on COVID-wise and in politics in this country and in the US. So yeah, I imagine it's quite a hectic time for these journalists right now. Um, But yeah, thanks guys for tuning in. Be sure again to check us out on social media. You can check us out on Twitter at Shapes of Stories or myself on Twitter under, well, at LPrestige7 and on Instagram under Prestige Books. But thanks guys for joining in and look look forward to seeing you next time.